religion enslaves people. It's amazing what people will do to be spiritual. Pacomius, now called Saint Pacomius, was a communal monastic in the third century. He established eight monasteries and two convents with 7,000 residents who prayed 12 times a day and dedicated themselves to poverty and chastity. He led a religious movement that advocated asceticism, the practice of abstaining from any of life's pleasures to become holy. By the 6th century, 50,000 monks were living in monasteries in Egypt. Simeon Stylitis was a religious ascetic who lived on top of a 60-foot pillar with a platform that was only three feet in diameter. He lived there for 30 years in his attempt to become holy. Many pilgrims came to him for religious advice. Emperors and representatives of church councils sought his advice as a Christian holy man. His disciple, Daniel the Stylite, lived on the same pillar after Simeon died. It was said that his legs were totally atrophied by the time of his death three decades later. Religion sets up measurable standards to determine our spirituality. Because it is hard to measure love, joy, peace, kindness, and personal intimacy with God, religion looks for external performance markers that will prove our spirituality. It is holiness by checklist. Check the boxes for our religious markers. We do these things, and we don't do those things, and that makes us holy. External markers become more important than spiritual realities. Those external markers of our religion enslave us. Legalism is holiness by checklist. When I was growing up, I lived by the rules of our fundamentalist Christian world. I could not watch a football game on Sunday afternoon, but I could listen to it in my room on the radio. The Bible college that I attended had lots of rules, and I had to sign a statement pledging my allegiance to those rules every year. I could not go to the movies. I could not play card games with a regular deck of playing cards, but I could play those same games with a deck of rook cards. Hair must be off the ears and off the collar. Beards were not allowed. Sideburns could not be below the ear, and mustaches must not go below the corner of the mouth. They had a rule that we had to tell the gospel to 15 people each semester. Often, I would end my semester by finding some drunk on a street corner and tell him the gospel so I could sign my statement and get my grades for the semester. Religion enslaves us, but God's grace frees us. We no longer live by the law, but by grace. We are no longer slaves, but sons and daughters of God. Paul in Galatians 4 tells us that God saves slaves 
to adopt as sons and daughters. We were once slaves to religious rules, to religious regulations, but God redeemed us from our holiness checklists to become his sons and daughters by grace. God chooses to save slaves to become his sons and daughters. In Galatians 4, Paul tells us that the law enslaves, Galatians 4, 1 through 3, the law enslaves. Now I say, Paul writes, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. We miss the flavor of these verses unless we understand the legal background behind Paul's analogy. Paul sets up an illustration from the Roman laws of inheritance in verses 1 and 2, and then makes his point in verse 3. An underage child was not considered an heir to all that the father possessed under Roman law until he became a son. He owned it all as the child of his father, but had no say in how it was spent. Thus he was no different than a slave. In Roman law, the father was an absolute dictator over his family and his estate. He owned the children and had total control over all who were in his household, including their personal assets. Although the child owned it all, he was himself owned by the father. The father could do anything he wanted to the child because the child had no rights under the law. The child was owned by the father until one of two things happened. One, the father died, or two, the father freed the boy to become a son. By the way, unfortunately, daughters had no rights in this male-dominated society. The law only applied to boys. Now, the time appointed by the father for the child to become a son could vary, but it generally involved two different times. First, the child became a son around the age of 14 to 16, at the ceremony known as liberalia. But if the father died at that point, he often appointed a guardian or trustee to oversee the family property until the son reached the age of 25. Then the son assumed control of the family estate. The guardian was often a trusted slave who had extensive powers over both the son and the estate during those years. In effect, the child heir was the slave of a slave until the time appointed by the father for the boy to become a son, and thereby a full heir. Paul then applies this illustration to spiritual principles in verse 3. The Greek word translated elements meant things that were basic components of anything in this world. Philo, 
use the term to refer to the basic elements of the material universe, which he believed were earth, water, air, and fire. Those four things were the basic elements of the material universe. The word was used to refer to the alphabet as the building blocks of language. So we might say that Paul is talking about the ABCs of religious life in this world, the elemental principles. The ABCs of religion are the rules, regulations, and rituals which are the components of that religion. These rules, regulations, and rituals are designed to gain God's favor and to prove our holiness. Every religion is man's attempt to reach God, so every religion contains these basic ABCs. Christianity, if it is merely a religion, is no different than any other religion. People are enslaved by the ABCs of the religion. Now, every religious system that man has ever invented is based on the same basic principles. Every religious system designs rules, regulations, and rituals to govern human lives in order to curry God's favor. Whether it is the Aztec practice of sacrificing a young lady periodically to placate the gods, or the establishing of moral laws in a civilized culture, if the purpose is to satisfy God's demands with our goodness, then those laws enslave us with our own religious system. We can even become slaves to laws in our modern secular world. In Sardinia, Italy, Mario Manelli went to City Hall for a new identity card. He was told that he had been officially dead for 19 years and that by remaining alive, he was breaking the law. The same slavish adherence to laws happens in the religious world as well. Sabbath laws are a good historical example. The story is told of a young pastor who discovered that an ice storm had made the road to church impassable one Sunday. The only way to get to church was to skate along the river, which is exactly what he did. He skated to church. He arrived at church where he was met by a horrified group of church elders because he had been skating on the Sabbath. They called a church meeting after the service, and he explained to them that skating to church was the best way to get there. Finally, someone asked him, Did you enjoy it? When the young pastor said no, the elders decided that it was all right as long as he didn't have any fun doing it. Well, I want to tell you that is bondage to law. Sabbath laws developed to promote holiness. They had a good goal, but they devolved into bondage, just as Paul said legalism always does. Religious law enslaves us with our own rules, regulations, and rituals. Unfortunately, far too many Christians, for far too many years, have been functioning 
or continue to function under the bondage to the ABCs of religion. So, the law enslaves, Paul says, but God saves. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. The law enslaves, but God saves. In fact, God saves slaves. Paul writes, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has set forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God delights to save slaves of religions all over this world, including Baptist slaves. God saves us Baptists who are enslaved to our baptistry. Being a Baptist or a Methodist or any other ist does not gain you any standing with God. Any religion is nothing more than the ABCs of life. Any religion enslaves humans. But remember, my friends, that God saves slaves. The two most important words in this passage are the words, but God. But God. Religion enslaves us, but God saves us. Christianity is different from every other religious system humans have ever devised. Christianity says, yes, of course, there are moral absolutes. Yes, there are rules and regulations which God sets out. But the performance of those rules and regulations cannot save you cannot save me. Salvation only comes when God, as an act of his grace, changes me and begins to produce in me the ability to live by his standards. My responsibility is to trust him and act on the basis of his power in my life. So it may be a cliche, but it is true. Christianity is not a religion, it is a relationship, and that makes all the difference in the world. Christianity is not about what we do for God, it is about what God does for us. Now there are two statements in these verses upon which all the other theology of this passage rests. Both statements use the same Greek word, God sent. God sent his son in verse 4, and God sent his spirit in verse 6. So let's first of all look at how God sent his son in verses 4 and 5. God sent his son in the fullness of time. Paul is telling us here that this is the turning point of human history. The coming of Jesus Christ is the pivotal event of all human history. God sent his Son at the appointed time, 
in the fullness of time. Have you ever wondered why God chose that time to send Jesus Christ into the world? There are perhaps many reasons. It was the first time in human history when the entire Mediterranean world functioned peacefully under the rule of one political empire. It was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. There was a common language, Greek, which the entire Mediterranean world understood. These factors made it possible for Christianity to spread rapidly. However, there is another facet of the first century world we don't often think about when we think about the fullness of time. The world of the Roman Empire had sunk into a moral black hole that even the pagan philosophers spoke out against. The first century world was far worse than even the United States of America today. The Roman world was filled with everything from homosexuality and prostitution to abortion and infanticide. It was into this kind of world that God sent his son. It was into this kind of world that God gave birth to the church. We assume that God would break into the human world when we are moral and upright. But God chooses to break into the human world when we are most immoral and most destitute. When humans finally realize that all of our ABCs of life will not make a difference, that moment is when God can work in human lives. So, God frequently brings humans to the end of our abilities so that we will accept his ability to save us, to the end of the ABCs so that we will accept his grace. God changed Roman society by changing human hearts, not rewriting moral codes. And he does the same today. When people get saved, they live differently because they have new hearts and new minds. Society is changed by God changing individual humans from the inside out. God sent his son to be born of a woman born under the law. Well, God does this so that Jesus must live as a human to become humanity's substitute for sin. Jesus entered into the very prison house where we lived. And he lived in that prison house of sin without sinning. And he did it for two purposes in verse 5. One, God sent his son to redeem slaves. To redeem slaves. Paul said the same thing back in Galatians 3.13. He even used the same Greek word, redeem. The word means to buy out of the marketplace. Jesus took us out of the marketplace of law by dying under the curse of the law. Notice that the word law here does not have the article the in the Greek text. It is not a specific law, but the quality of law that Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about the law in principle, not the Mosaic law specifically. Jesus Christ redeemed each of us 
from whatever laws were governing our lives and enslaving us. Two, God sent his son to adopt sons. To adopt sons. The first purpose of sending his son was to redeem slaves. The second purpose is to adopt sons. Paul develops the new analogy of adoption because Roman adoption laws bring out the force of what God did for us when we became Christians. Roman law on adoption was very interesting. It involved two stages. The key in Roman adoption law was in determining who could contest the issue in a paternity lawsuit. Obviously, if the biological father was dead, he could not contest the issue when it went to court, so it was a moot point then. But if the biological father was alive, then he could contest paternity. So the Romans developed a process for him to remove his power to contest the adoption. Stage 1. The biological father would sell his son into slavery to a friend. This friend would free the son to return to the father. This transaction would take place three times. Under Roman law, after three such sales by the biological father, he ceased to have any authority over the son. Yet this still left the son a slave to the friend. Stage 2. The adopting father would then lay claim to in the courts to the child as his son. Since the biological father could no longer legally contest the claim, the court would award the child to the adopting father, having literally purchased the child out of slavery. Well, I think the analogy is beautiful and powerful. We were sold into slavery by our sin. We were enslaved. The law was our master. The law oppressed us under the elemental powers, the ABCs of this world. Yet Christ bought us out of the slave market so that the Father could adopt us as legal sons and daughters and Satan could not contest the adoption. Now, we have established positional sonship then in these verses. We are positionally adopted as sons of God. We can know this sonship is true, but not experience the freeing power of our sonship. Many Christians know the truth of positional sonship, but fail to experience the emancipating power of sonship. Knowing that it is true, positionally, and experiencing the truth are two very different things. That is why Paul goes on to state his second proposition. Not only did God send his Son, but God sent his Spirit. Verses 6 and 7. God sent his Spirit. Because we are now sons and daughters, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. The Holy Spirit 
is the one who helps us experience the reality that we are sons and daughters of God in our everyday lives. The analogy from Roman law does not end with legal adoption. Remember that in Roman law, even if you were adopted as a child, you were still just like any other child heir. You were no better than a slave, even if you owned it all. So, God gave us his spirit, making us no longer an adopted child, but adult sons and daughters. Just as in Roman law, a father could free his child, so God freed us in Christ by his spirit. It is the spirit of God's son, Jesus, who allows us to experience our sonship and daughtership in all of its fullness, in all of its richness. We didn't just become children of God, we became adult sons and daughters of God. It is the Spirit of God's Son, Jesus, who cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father, Abba. The word Abba is the Aramaic equivalent of Daddy. It is the same word that Jesus uses when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and was crying out to God, pleading with the Father, saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Abba. Luke tells us that an angel from God came to strengthen him and that his sweat became like drops of blood as he pleaded with his Abba. God sent the spirit of his son to us so that we too could cry out, Abba. The spirit of Jesus Christ gives us the same privilege of addressing God that he himself has, especially in those moments of heartache, those moments of crisis, when we cannot handle what we face in life, we can cry out, Abba! That's incredible to me. This is a unique relationship, a tender, intimate relationship, not a slave relationship which the Spirit of Jesus gives to us. We have been transformed from a slave to a son or daughter by the grace of Jesus Christ. And that is why Paul tells us in verse 7 that we are sons and heirs. It is all of God and not of us. The last expression in verse 7 is the phrase, through God through God. In Greek, they place something at the end of a sentence to emphasize it. So Paul emphasizes that all we have is through God. The biggest reason why Christianity is different from all religions is that it is a work of God which changes humans from slaves into sons and daughters. He did it. We experience it through God's grace. Have you experienced that sonship or that daughtership? I'm not asking if you are religious. I'm not asking if you go to church. 
Many people practice religion but are in bondage to the requirements of that religion. You can be religious but be a servant, not a son or a daughter. John Wesley, the great English evangelist in the 1700s, looking back over his Christian life, wrote about his early years in his journal. He said he was devoted to the duties and obligations of Christianity, but he never understood the freedom of grace. And he wrote, I had even then the faith of a servant, though not of a son. I had even then the faith of a servant, though not of a son. What about you? Do you have the faith of a servant, but not a son or daughter of God? You may be a member of your church and have professed faith in Jesus Christ, but you are functioning under the ABCs of religion. You may have faithfully performed the function of a servant for years and years, just like John Wesley. But you have never experienced the freedom of being a son or daughter of Almighty God. You can, you know. It is yours to enjoy by faith in Jesus Christ. Let the Spirit bring that freedom of His grace into your life today. God saves slaves to adopt as sons and daughters. And God does so solely by His grace, not our efforts, not our performance. Chuck Swindoll draws a nice analogy in his book Grace Awakening, to which I would add an element. Imagine that you have a six-year-old son whom you love very much. One day you discover that your son has been horribly murdered. A lengthy search is made, and eventually you find the killer. You have several choices. You feel like killing him yourself because you are so angry. But killing him yourself would be vengeance. You could let the legal authorities prosecute him in a fair trial and condemn him as guilty. And that is justice. You could plead for his pardon and pay the price to set him free. That would be mercy. Or you could forgive him completely and invite him into your home and adopt him as your son. That, my friends, is grace. My sin killed God's son, murdered God's son. But instead of justice, certainly not vengeance, or even mercy, God adopts me as his son. God exercises grace toward me. Every day God offers grace to sinners like you and me. We have sinned against him, but he redeems us from that sin by his grace, and he adopts us into his family despite the fact that our sin murdered his son. And that, my friends, is amazing grace. Grace.